Hi, I'd like to welcome everyone to the Roxborough Roundtable. My name is Elena Fithian and I'm the student coordinator, coordinator for the tables. Today our topic is the hashtag WeToo movement, a sexual harassment conference across two campuses with our host, Dr. Fry. Hi, my name is Dr. Rick Fry. I'm an associate professor of psychology from the Community College of Philadelphia. I'm also an adjunct professor here at Jefferson University where I teach industrial organizational psychology and this semester with my students here in forensic psychology. Psychology applied to the law. I'm also the lead researcher at the Sitchin Project, which is a uh, interdisciplinary research project sponsored by the Fox Rothschild Center for Law Society at Community College of Philadelphia. Um, we've done research for the past 10 years, uh, student-driven survey research on topics uh, including police-community relations, sexting, the soda tax, basically forensic psychology research, uh, how the law applies or affects human behavior. Um, so I'd like to have the rest of my uh, my panel introduce themselves. Uh, I'm Ashley, um, and I'm going to be talking about sexual harassment definition of it. Um, so basically, sexual harassment can be anything that's unwanted or sexual favors, obscene remarks, or behavior towards someone, or just in general. It can be in the social settings, it can be in the workplace. It doesn't have a specific setting for it. Um, there's two types um, under sexual harassment, which could be hostile work environment or quid pro quo. Um, hostile work environment is basically anything that could be offensive to someone or make someone feel uncomfortable. It could be hangings on the wall, it could be a poster, um, it could be something that you have on your desk that someone sees. It, it really just depends on what makes someone else uncomfortable. Um, quid pro quo is basically I want you to do something in exchange for employment benefits, which could be raises promotions, better shifts, more hours, it just depends. And um, you can still decline and it can be impacting your appointment to be fired, your hours can be cut back, your pay can be cut back, it basically depends on that boss of discretion. Um, a company can still be liable even if they aren't aware that it happened per se with those individuals. Um, and even if you do agree to commit for to those sexual favors, it doesn't negate quid pro quo. Um, before we continue on, let's, let's go on real quick and, and have each person in the group introduce themselves just so we know whose voice is who's here. So, I'm Ethan, I'm a junior uh, health science major here at Jefferson. I'm Jacob, I'm, uh, I'm a sophomore at Community College of Philadelphia School of Psychology. I'm Kathy Smith, I am the founding director of the Fox Rothschild Center for Law and Society at Community College. I'm now at Hawkeye um, College and I'm also an attorney. And I've my distant past, I've handled some sex and race cases. I'm Catherine Lallier. I am a junior in the psychology program at Jefferson University. I'm Madison. I'm a sophomore and I'm a psychology major. I'm Colin and I'm a communications major. Excellent. So, uh, Matt, let's talk a little bit here. Um, one of the first things we want to talk a little bit about, since we are here at the uh, our respective house, um, and we're going to talk a little about sexual harassment, is our inspector's legacy as it comes or relates to sexual harassment. Um, if anyone's familiar with the case of Anita Hill, in fact, let's talk a little bit. Talk about uh, Anita Hill. Yeah, so Anita Hill, she is an attorney, and in 1991, um, Clarence Thomas was nominated to replace uh, Thurgood Marshall, who was um, an associate justice of the Supreme Court. Anita Hill, she claimed that um, he had sexually harassed her when they worked together in like previous um, careers. Um, he sexually harassed her um, when he was uh, her supervisor with inappropriate comments and asked her out on multiple occasions. Um, Anita Hill took a polygraph test um, that was from the court and everything that she said was supported by her statements. Um, during the case, Arlen Specter was a Pennsylvania senator who accused Anita Hill of flat out perjury and told the press her credibility has been demolished. Um, Spectre tried to trust um, the Spectre tried to trust the stay around involuntary Hill and Thomas. His goal was to manipulate Hill's prior statements as well as statements from other people to try and make it seem as though he was lying about her encounters with Thomas. But in the end, she stuck with her words through the campaign. I remember that hearing, unlike these young faces that I see here. And um, it, I went back and watched it in, in preparation for today. Uh, and it's really fascinating to watch 
um, I was I was outraged. I mean, I, I, you know, I think that we think that outrage at sexual harassment is something that we've evolved to at this point in our in our history. But there were a lot of people at the time of the Mandy Hill was going on that were absolutely outraged. I was so outraged that I sent Ellen Spector a letter, and I had to. And this is how long ago it was. I had to do it on a typewriter. So, you know, we're not talking about, I don't have it saved on my computer. Uh, I wasn't even living in Pennsylvania there at all, Inspector Letter. Um, watching it now, having had more legal experience, what I see is him going into prosecutor mode. You know, he wants to, he talked about uh, uh, affecting her credibility. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to really get, you know, destroy her credibility. Um, and I think one of the things that's, many things are interesting about the case, she did not come forward like, oh, I think I'm gonna be famous. She was subpoenaed. She did not want to be there. It wasn't like someone who saw an opportunity. Um, and I think that Clarence Thomas's, Thomas's words are very interesting. He flips the whole thing when you hear him, hear him speak about it. And he says, and he, he indicts the Senate and makes it a, 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 a situation that's about race and, and pretty much ignores her says, I'm being indicted by the Senate and, and, and denies what she she's alleging. Um, but he was a very powerful phrase, a high-tech lynching. High-tech lynching, yeah. The phrase he used to describe the way he was being treated. Yeah, exactly, which, you know, really, it, it, it was a phrase that I think shut down the conversation um, really well, really well. I think Biden's also interesting at that time. Uh, I went, you know, Biden, Joe Biden, who still has political aspirations, um, has said that he feels that he now owes me to Hill an apology. And I have to say, in my humble opinion, I agree. <laughs> just in the light of that, I'd like to add two things because I have researched mm -hmm. this extensively. Uh, two things that a lot of people don't know. Uh, Spectre, not defending it, but just giving background. Uh, Janita Hill, although she was claiming to be mistreated by Clarence Thomas, had reached out to him a number of times. Um, both personally and for letters of recommendations over the years after she left work. And that made Spectre suspicious of her testimony. Because had she, his thoughts were that had she been so offended or offended in any way by him, why was she reaching out to him on numerous occasions in a friendly manner? Putting that aside. Uh, you mentioned Biden. This is also very interesting. There were two other witnesses who were going to corroborate what Anita Hill said. One of them was to cooperate Anita Hill, and another one was going to introduce that he had done the same thing to her. And these were substantial professional women. It's not like a stormy Daniels or whatever, but these, these were substantial people with great reputations. They were not allowed to testify. The person who made that decision was Joseph Biden. All inspector actually had asked uh, Biden for more time so these women can testify. And Biden turned it down, saying it's time to shut down these hearings. So when we look at the situation, the, the microscope looking at Spectre that day is a very upsetting thing to watch. But he had information that she might, in his mind, be lying based upon what she had her behavior over the years. And he also did want to hear other points of view, which were shut down by Biden. I, I think I agree with you. In in, in what you said factually, I think there's a real problem where we don't understand that sexual harassment is about power more than it's about an equal playing field. And I, and this is not my field, and perhaps someone else can weigh in on it. I mean, the idea that she would continue to reach out to this man for references, he was still more powerful than she was all those years later. And I think we're just beginning to understand how that all works. And I think until we really come to that acceptance, we're not going to begin to really scratch the surface of sexual harassment. So I've actually done extensive research on sexual harassment, sexual abuse victims, being for my closing actual consent required major and for capstone. And just because a victim still reaches out to her abuser does not negate the abuse. She may have no choice. Who else was she to go to for these recommendations? She worked for him. Yeah, he harassed her that time. Who else was she supposed to go to, though? That was who she worked for. He has her credentials. He is the person she would speak to. I don't think in any way that, that would negate the abuse that she suffered or the harassment that she suffered. And I, I, and I just think that it should be very carefully spoken about because it kind of 
reduces the responsibility that Clarence Thomas had because, oh, he did her this favor of a letter of recognition after he harassed her. It's no favor. It's, she had no choice. She needed a letter of recommendation. She had to pursue her career. She did what she had to do. It does not negate in any terms the harassment. It does not make her a liar in any terms. She still experienced what she experienced, and she like was steadfast through the entire trial of her experiences. Well, I mean, the other—I mean, one thing I want to look at today is a survey that our that my forensic psychology and my research methods classes worked on. And one of the things in the survey we looked at was the idea of sexual harassment myths. And it's still a relatively pervasive myth—the idea that somehow if someone uh, uh, still goes to a person for a recommendation, uh, still has a has a, a a not negative relationship with a person, that that somehow is evidence that this that somehow the sexual harassment did not occur. That still, as you're going to see in our survey, is still a relatively pervasive myth that people still think when it comes to sexual harassment. You have fathers that repeatedly rape and abuse their children, but they still love their dad at the end of the day. You can't you can't it just happens like. You can, but how a person reacts to their abuser does not negate the abuse, and that's why that's a myth. It's it's a sexual harassment myth. So I said, let's let's talk a little about the research that that, that, um, that my, my students have done over the course of the last year. Um, as part of my work with the Fox Law Child Center for Law Society, we do this very unique project. It's called the Stitching Project, where students actually work on a survey over the course of a year long period, and it occurs over the course of two semesters, where one semester's class actually writes a survey. And the next semester's class administers the survey, tabulates the results, and presents it at conferences and presentations like this. So now my spring semester's class is writing a, uh, a survey for the fall on the topic of guns and gun violence. So um, one of the things I want to talk a little bit about is some of the research that we did looking at sexual harassment as it relates in this case to personality. Because as a psychologist, one of the things I know is that as trying to reduce sexual harassment, Clearly, doing things to change the environment plays a role. Having uh, more specific rules regarding how sexual harassment is is um, is is um, uh, dealt with in, a, in an organization, for example, or things that a manager can do to try to reduce sexual harassment in the workplace. But clearly, one of the things from a psychology standpoint is that there's individual differences in the way we as human beings uh, behave towards others, and. Since we can measure those things, we know that some of those personality individual differences are related to sexual harassment. So I want to do today is talk a little bit about the research we did. And I thought I'd start, um, you ready to start? Um, if I may oh. interject, oh, I think uh, I know a, a number of people here have seen the um, instrument that we use, but if not, um, we have copies of it here, and I think now would be a good time. Oh, sure, if you'd like to have a copy sure, to review, um, you know. You pass these around. Here's copies of the survey, and also we have copies of the results here. Yeah, so um, in our surveys, we specifically look at um, three personality characteristics that are known as the dark triad. And pretty much based off the name, it, they're dark characteristics that tend to correlate well with crime in general and not just sexual harassment. So the three um, personality traits are psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism. Um, and then our surveys were particularly marked on narcissism and Machiavellianism. So narcissism is pretty much just someone who has an egotistic personality. They have self-importance. Self they seem to think that they um, deserve more rights than other people. And then Machiavellianism is generally someone who manipulates others. They enjoy having people um, do things for them. And in our survey, it points out like pretty general statements, one of them being, if I show any weakness at work, others will take advantage. Um, I like to control situations. I really like being the center of attention. And um, so a lot of these things tend to correlate with criminals and sexual harassment. So in a pop culture type of way, we correlated Dennis Reynolds, I don't know if anyone watches, it's always sunny in Philadelphia, but he has several characteristics that are very narcissistic. He loves controlling others, he has self-importance, and he just imagines that every girl anywhere would be honored to be under his presence. And then as a real world situation, we um, put Donald Trump on the line here. Um, during his, pre his campaign, numerous women came out and accused him of sexual harassment. 
and in those accusations, he would be um, seen or even heard saying in video recordings, I don't even wait, I'm a star, um, you know, um, and then other statements. Skip right over that next part, that's good. Yeah, um, <laughs> one by Karina Virginia um, at the outside of the U.S. Tennis Open, he, she accused him of just walking up to her, reached for her arm, and then grabbed her um, right breast as well. And then when she seemed surprised, um, he, actually, he actually said, don't you know who I am? So he thought that because he was Donald Trump and because he was empowered in that situation that he was on, she should have been honored that he was seeing her in that type of way. And I guess for some of like the lawyers in the room who have like dealt with sexual harassment, in actual cases, do the personality traits weigh just as much as some of the other like things in the courtroom? Because like a lot of it is he said, she said. So I don't know if you guys like use that in the courtroom at all. That was my question. Well, I will say this, we, we know from, in front of psychology, some of the research that looks at sexual harassment, that as much as we wouldn't want to admit this, the attractiveness of both the harasser and the person who's been accused, and who's accusing, play a role when it comes to how people view their believability. So for example, if the accuser is more attractive than the person who's accusing, they tend to believe the accuser. If the person who's been accused is more attractive than the accuser, it goes the other way. So it's interesting, uh, as much as we'd like to think that doesn't play a role, that certainly does. I'm not quite too sure that, I would argue this, in some ways, personality, and that's what makes it such a difficult survey to do, because people, as you just said, people who are narcissistic tend not to view their behavior as sexual harassment, because who wouldn't want their attention? So how can, you know, that's not harassment, I mean, are you kidding? I'm giving them what they want. So in some ways, that makes it very difficult to try to measure this in terms of a personality trait, because trying to ask people about their sexual harassment is very difficult because very often they don't view it as that way. So what we're going to see is one of the things we did on the survey, we're going to see here in a minute, is that in a way of trying to get around that measurement, we gave people justifications for sexual harassment, some excuses. And we're going to see in a minute, we actually created a scale from looking at actual famous people who actually have given justifications for sexual harassment. And we use that as a way of thinking, well, if people wouldn't be willing to admit that they had actually sexually harassed themselves, would they be willing to say, well, you know what, this justification for sexual harassment, I'd buy that. I'd buy the fact that this person was saying this for money or doing this for attention. And if they'd be willing to say that, that was kind of one of the reasons we used the scale that we did. So, if, if I could, I, I don't think I can match your word for minute rate. But no, I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'll sit down. In answer to your question from a legal standpoint, I'm going to give you two answers. Um, one is in terms of evidence of a personality trait, you know, if we're looking at things that would be considered legal evidence, it would not be. However, if I'm going to put together a trial, I'm going to, I'm going to think about things in two ways. Legally, how can I prove it? And also, what will get the jury to believe when I'm presenting? So being aware of the victim and the um, perpetrator's personalities is going to really help me in figuring out how to present things to the jury. So, and if someone's narcissistic, um, and you guys are studying psychology, I've never had a psychology course in my life, but I would imagine <laughs> that there'd be two things you'd be concerned with. In one way, you think that narcissism may help your case. On the other hand, my understanding is many narcissists are very charming, so you'd want to be concerned with that, that person's ability to charm the jury. So I think the, the fact that your question is, is something that you would really, really want to tease out in terms of what you presented at a trial. And I actually did some research. Um, these two cases in particular were in Australia. Okay. But in Australia, a, a few cases, they have actually decreased prison sentences because they viewed narcissism as a plea for mental illness and stuff uh, like that for sexual harassment cases. And, and I know to, nothing about Australian law. So yeah, and to, to me that sounds like astonishing that that's wow. even like a thing. So, Well, I, I, you know, it depends, I, it depends if you're looking at the idea of the trait of narcissism or maybe a narcissistic personality disorder, which is thought to be a little more pervasive and a what little more... What was the first thing you said, Just the trait of the trait. Trait, okay, okay. I would also say this about, 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 uh, about, 
personality being involved in this. You know, I don't know the fuck that was you. And I'm looking at the story, it's not, it's, not really a, it's not really a sexual harassment story. It's more of a, it's just more of a, it's a general story. I was, uh, Kathy and I a few years ago were working on um, the move, uh, the move project. Right. The idea that where they where they bombed that they, they bombed um, the, the, um, the, the Western West Philadelphia the city of Philadelphia dropped a bomb in West Philadelphia to try on, to on this cult called move. And afterwards, they had had this commission to see what had happened, and it was interesting. I had gone through and I went to Tesla. They had all the things on display and all the documents from doing this commission. And one of the things they had there, they had the police officers who were involved. They had their personality test scores on the MMPI were listed as part of his evidence. And I was sitting there this myself, wow, this is, this is pre-HIPAA. You know, this is before, you know, these things were allowed. But it was really amazing the fact that these pieces, this, this data, whoever had done the discovery had, had gotten this, these personality tests on these police officers as part of the, as part of the discovery for this evidence. So the idea that some of personality would never be looked at, I, you know, I'm not quite too sure, I'm not too sure that, that that's, that's, especially given the fact that we very often select people for jobs based on personality. So that might mean that that could be fair game to bring that up if you knew that there were certain personality traits that were in some way related to this type of behavior. But yeah, I, I guess it's it's kind of a gray area though in terms of in terms of looking at it because clearly narcissistic personality disorder I guess could be thought of as being a psychological disorder. And when you've got things like the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, we might say to ourselves, well, if you've been diagnosed with that, that could be considered a psychological disorder, and therefore you couldn't fire someone or fail to hire them based on on that on that on that. On that. Under the ADA, for something to be um, some legally protected, it has to be interfering with one or major life activity. Mm -hmm. So then you run into what would it interfere with? Um, well, I, I guess you could, but the list of those behaviors is, is immense. And, I mean, there are social, there are certainly social behaviors involved in that list. You know, life activities involving things like having friendships, I believe, are things that would be things that fall in that category. So, which I think, because again, they, 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 most states will allow, don't they allow psychological disorders as part of it? They do, but, but for it to be accommodated in a, in a workplace, for example, it has to, you have to show that there's an interference, but you can, that you can still perform the duties of the job, but it has an interference with one or major effectivity. But, that, but that's, for, that's for hiring, though, as opposed to the idea of for, for um, or I mean, I mean that's, that's for accommodating an apple. Right. But the idea of being able to say, well, because you've been diagnosed and you have this narcissistic thing, we're not going to hire you. I think that's what I'm not too sure. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about the research that, that, that we had done this semester. And I actually I was uh, kind enough to bring um, Jacob George over from CCP, came over to help me a little bit uh, present some of the things we did for the research. So he's going to talk a little bit about the moral justifications issue that we looked at, but also the, the general results of the survey itself. So as far as the uh, moral justifications go, it's uh, similar. It's related to the moral disengagement part of the research that we did. Uh, moral disengagement, in a sense, is being out of touch with your sense of what is right and what is wrong. And what is right and what is wrong is usually learned through socialization at a young age. And <clears throat> we use our morals to keep our actions in line with socially acceptable behavior in order to avoid social outcasting. And we use three steps to accomplish this. There are self-monitoring, where we watch what we do and we're aware of our own actions and the implications they have. And then there's the judgment of our own behavior, where we assess the cause and effect of our action and self-reflection, where we reflect on our actions and the effect of it on ourselves. When we do something, when someone does something morally unjust or wrong, people that are morally disengaged will not understand nor accept the fact that their behavior is frowned upon. Instead, they will try to justify their actions. And they do so by, uh, <clears throat> They usually justify their action for a greater good, saying that they did that what they did was for a better purpose, or they'll displace or diffuse the situation by taking their actions out of context in, in order to justify themselves. Also, they sometimes they'll try to manipulate the situation and alter the context of their actions in order to benefit their own, own interests. And uh, they also attempt to dehumanize or shame the victim in order to clear themselves of any wrongdoing. <clears throat> One study on a uh, uh, one study on moral disengagement found that in children, their family's socioeconomic status and the child's popularity and age significantly affected their willingness to justify moral disengagement. And males were more likely to justify moral disengagement. And those who felt guilty were less likely to repeat these justifications again, and vice versa. And it's also, uh, it's also possible that antisocial personalities are linked to moral disengagement. 
since the lack of socialization at a young age affects their ability to understand what is socially acceptable and what is not. From this understanding of moral disengagement, it's, it's not surprising that people who justify sexual harassment are more likely to morally disengage, and those, people, those same people are more likely to believe in sexual harassment myths, while they may not actually commit the crime, if they're more likely to accept the behaviors that are present. I have a question. So when you describe moral disengagement, what occurred to me is that that makes sense to me if you don't have a societal system that says this behavior is okay, that it's more individualistic. So do we, I mean, are we looking at a society where we've come to that, that point where it's an individual kind of justifying the behavior, or do we still have a systems that are supporting this kind of treatment of women, this uh, sexual harassment? There's also like a general sense of morality of what is right and wrong, but oh. people deviate from that on a normal basis depending on their upbringing and how they were taught certain things. So people, people that do justify sexual harassment may have had a different upbringing than someone that views it differently. So it, all or it could be time. I mean, I'm thinking of Mad Men. You know, if anyone watched oh, Mad Men, I couldn't get past the first episode. Yeah. They were so mad. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was acceptable. I mean, it, it, and I think, and I think that, I think, frankly, and I'm not speaking. I'm speaking as as a person, not a lawyer. Now, I think we're kidding ourselves if we don't think it's still acceptable in many many strictures. I mean, I, you know, I think sexual harassment among you know, women who are waitresses, women who are working in, in uh, I think it's gotten a lot of press with movie industry and certain businesses, but I think it, where you talk about situations where there's women have, with even less power making less money, I think it's, I, I think it's still acceptable. So it's, I think that's something I would like to just throw out there for well, comment. I, well, I also, I think in, in that regard, so, because while it's still acceptable, it's less, and that's why we need why do we need moral justifications? In many ways, I always think of moral justifications kind of like the same way Freud talked about defense mechanisms. We feel guilty about this bad behavior we've done. We don't want to feel bad about it. So we come up with some way to try to justify it. We, we, we blame the victim. We, um, we, uh, we might take it out of context, you know, or a, a class one, the downward social comparison. Sure, what I did was bad, but look what that person did. All these are different ways that we try to morally justify or feel better about the fact that we did. And the fact that we had to do it at all in some ways says that we have changed somewhat since the Mad Men days in terms of having to do that, where people feel like at least they have to have a need to come up with some excuse for why they did what they did. And that's what makes I that's why I love this survey so much because the way the students wrote those, those questions really wasn't just wasn't to make them up. They just took the moral justifications that famous people have given over the past oh, four wow. months. So some of the moral justifications we have in there, the one on here is that um, um, it happened 30 years ago. It was a different time then, a different era. That was exactly what Harvey Weinstein said when he was accused of sexual harassment. Or, did you see how ugly she was? Why would I harass her? That's what, that's what Trump said. So <laughs> the, the, these were actually taken from just from the headlines from the past three months, the first three months of the Me Too movement. And that's where these came from. And that's why we thought this would be an interesting way of looking at this, where we didn't ask people directly about their sexual harassment, but did they think these were acceptable excuses for what happened in that movement? Yeah. Interesting. Question. You had your hand up. Oh, I was saying uh, to the social justification thing um, that I know in psychology we, we have this thing called cognitive dissonance where it's not necessarily justifying because we know that it's wrong, but more so that we don't feel comfortable in ourselves. So, like with the waitress thing, like sometimes when people feel uncomfortable, then certain people say certain things or sexual favors or advances towards women or who are in the food industry. It's like, well, it's not wrong because this is what they have to do to make money. It's their job to be acceptable of this, and it's not really true. It's just that we say it because we don't want to feel that we're a bad person. It's not necessarily, oh, this is wrong. Like, it's more just a personal experience for it. You know, it's funny, except like, when you say accept it, it's just you have to be really careful with that word because having gone through the 80s and living at the time is different from now, maybe the people harassing thought it was acceptable. The people being harassed did not, but felt powerless to fight back. So it, it's uh, it's an interesting way because the people being harassed at that time were very uncomfortable. There's a show on TV now called Rise, which actually has a very interesting scene. Um, one of the 
characters as a waitress. And she's constantly sexually harassed by the boss. And he thinks it's okay because she doesn't fight back, because she can't fight back because she's going to lose her job. So that still exists. And just to touch, because I believe so, but on a legal point of view, it's not only the people involved, it's the jury you've got to worry about. And all these things that you mentioned um, in your research, in the uh, Bill Cosby trial, the first one, the second one's going on right now. In the first one, they interviewed one of the jurors. And they asked, why did this juror vote for acquittal? And he said, well, she was wearing a tube top when she went into Bill Cosby's house. And yeah, he may have given her you know, uh, drugs, but she was wearing a tube top. So what else should she expect going to happen to her? So you have to worry about those 12 people on the jury and where they're coming from as well. And doing that personality, you ask those questions about personality. You have to understand that as well. Well, it goes back to that. It's a classic idea of blaming the victim. You know, why in social psychology do we blame the victim? Because it gives us power. I mean, it allows us, and who's the first person to blame the victim? Is the victim. Because then it gives them power to, to take back what they did. Well, if I had well, if I hadn't worn that tube top, then this wouldn't have happened. So if I don't wear this tube top in the future, this won't happen. And it's one of those things where, as much as we like to think that blaming the victim very often happens to other people, it very often happens to the victim as a way of trying to gain control over a situation where they lost power of control. Yeah. I, so when I, and for part of our research, our presentation with research camera in Africa, where breast ironing is very much alive and thriving over there. Even though there are, is, can you say that again? Cameroon, Africa. No, not in the place. Breast ironing. I'm not familiar with that. So what they do is they use very, uh, or very tools, and they, they heat like stones over fire, and then on like prepubescent girls' chest, they take the stones and they wrap them around their um, chest so that they're flat chested, so that they just have like empty sacks on their chest so that they don't mature so that men can't rape them because in the Cameroon so that men won't want to rape them let me let me correct myself because in Cameroon rape is very very common and even though there's laws against breast ironing it's not enforced because they know that the grandmothers and the mothers are doing it for a purpose because it's fear driven because if their daughter gets raped then she gets pregnant then she can't continue school and then if she's raped she's also labeled within the society there so it's instead of teaching the men in Cameroon not to rape 13-year-old girls, they're mutilating children because it's their fault for daring to mature, for daring to, like, become an adult. It's tough to follow that up. Right? Just saying, just saying, just <laughs> I tried not to well, talk, I, say, I did I my best. I was say, just going, but going, trying to go back to the survey, so I was saying, um, some, let's say, let's talk a little bit more about the, about the actual the, the survey itself and what the, res and what the results actually say. What we found that place. What? Yeah, just, I mean, we, we, know, we, we kind of know how the, the skirt, I mean, we talked a little about the scale of reviews, and we've talked a little bit about, you know, the number of people we got the, the data from. But we kind of, what, what, did, what did the study find? So, the study was uh, conducted by the uh, Script Police Defenders class at CCP in the Forensic Psychology class in Justice. And the surveys were uh, both administered face-to-face -face and online via SurveyMonkey. We had a total of uh, 2,988 respondents for the uh, survey. And of these respondents, 1,804 were females and 1,064 were males. And 19 of the respondents identified as uh, transgender, non-binary, or gender fluid. And uh, for race and ethnicity, 23% of the sample identified as African American, 42% were Caucasian, 2% Native American, 9% Latino or Hispanic, and 5% Asian. And 19% of it. Okay, we'll, we'll skip over the demographic test. Just, just, go, just go to the general results. What, what overall the, 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 the story found was. So, overall for the survey, our results concluded that uh, those uh, participants scoring higher on the narcissism and Machiavellianism scale were more likely to have a high, higher level of belief in sexual harassment and a higher acceptance of sexual harassment justifications, and that there was a strong correlation between scores on the sexual harassment scale and justifications for harassment scale, which means that the higher you score on the sexual harassment myth scale, uh, the more likely you were to accept justifications for harassment. Age, Machiavellianism, and narcissism had an interesting relationship, while age, belief, and sexual harassment myths and justifications for har harassment were unrelated. The results concluded that the younger participants reported higher levels of Machiavellianism and narcissism compared to older participants. The age of participants and their level of belief in sexual harassment myths and acceptance of justifications for harassment were unrelated. And one of the fascinating things we found was that one was 
as we had hypothesized, that both narcissism and machiavellism were related toward people's acceptance of, of sexual harassment myths, and also related to the idea of their acceptability of those justifications. The interesting thing we found was, previously when we had done the research last semester, we had assumed that older adults would have more, would have more, be more acceptable of sexual harassment, and younger adults would not be. And what we found was, interestingly, that, that uh, narcissism and machiavellism were negatively correlated with age. So younger adults were more machiavellian and more narcissistic than older adults were. And we saw no correlation between age and people's attitude about sexual harassment, which I thought was really <laughs> fascinating because you'd assume that, that older adults would be more accepting of sexual harassment. You hear how older adults are more accepting of Donald Trump's behavior than younger adults are who are more outraged by it. And then our survey didn't really find that. Um, the one thing we did find interesting was this, though. Um, uh, we looked at a couple different things. We looked at the differences between different campuses. And the interesting thing was we didn't see a whole lot of differences between the different colleges. Clearly, Jefferson students were much less accepting of sexual harassment myths, and they were much less accepting of the justifications. But in terms of the patterns that we saw as how people answered them, they weren't that different. They still accepted the same, uh, and they still accepted the same myths at the same level as the other campus. So, for example, if they thought that what was our highest scoring myth, what was our highest scoring myth? It was the one about people. The supervisor. What? Women who are caught having an affair with their supervisor complain that it was sexual. Yes, that was the most accepted myth, and it was the most accepted myth depending no matter what college you went to, whether you were a man or a woman, no matter your age. That was the most accepted myth. Now. They were, in some cases, obviously men accepted at a much higher rate than women. Jefferson students accepted at a much lower rate than other colleges. But the patterns within the way that people responded were the same. The myths that were highly accepted at one college were highly accepted at another. The myths or the justifications that were not accepted at one college were not accepted at the other. So yeah, there, while there were differences between the colleges, it didn't affect like the rank ordering of the way that data came out or, or what myth was thought to be more or less accepted. That one was actually particularly like serious for me to realize that that like myth is out there, or that like the top three are about um, supervisors and people in faculty positions, because if you look at the data, um, a study of like of British colleges showed that forty percent of students have experienced sexualized behavior from a staff member on at least one occasion, and eight have been eight percent have been touched by a staff member. So it's a pervasive issue, and it's very interesting to see that, like, that those myths about supervisors are there. Well, you know, it's, I, I, in some ways, it's interesting the fact that the most accepted myths are the ones that involve the supervisor having some negative outcome happen to them because of it. That somehow that the person would make it up to get back at the supervisor, or that the supervisor's career would somehow. And again, it's still it's it's, it's pretty interesting that the myths that are the most commonly accepted are the ones that. Focus not on the victim of the harassment, but on what would happen to the supervisor in the harassment, which I thought was really interesting. You know, actually, that brings us back to what we were talking about. We had part of it is, is, is preparing for this. We, were, we actually went and we looked at different colleges, especially here at Jefferson, to see what would students have to do if they had were, were harassed by a faculty member. What was the mechanism they would go through? Clearly, we know that in terms of sexual harassment cases, um, courts look much more favorably on a company if there is some clear procedure in place for how a person files a suit. If there's no clear procedure in place or there's no consequences as part of, let's say, the, uh, the, uh, the, the standard operating procedure of the company, then, then the, the, the court is much more likely to, 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 uh, to sympathize with, the, with, the, with the, or the, uh, the person who's accusing in that case. And Kat did some looking around at, at how our college deals with this issue. Well, um, our college and every other college really um became more responsible to uphold a program like that um, with the implication of uh, Title IX. So in uh, 1972, the federal law that prohibits sex discrimination in education um, was added to the education amendments. And that's Title IX, as it says, no person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. So that includes most colleges, uh, including Jefferson. Um, and here, um, uh, part of our first year seminar includes a sexual harassment training, or Title IX training. So um, I'd like to pose the question, uh, anyone here at this round table, do you remember undergoing that Title IX training as a freshman? Would, would anyone be willing to speak on that? Just 
what your experience was. I remember that online quiz we had to take freshman year that like kind of like, like you had to take it before, you had to take it during freshman orientation over the summer before like you actually came to the school and it was like three different online like quizzes all about like sexual harassment and like Title IX and like they gave you a little thing to read up on and you had like a four minute video to watch and then you took a short quiz after it and never been back to it since. Right, I, I feel that that's a pretty good summary of it and I think most people who, who have been through that training would agree. And um, a lot of issues uh, when this is discussed, like a lot of common themes that we see that are problems with this kind of training is that um, it's never been taught by like an actual professor, there's no authority figure distributing this information to you. You just click through this online program um, and then it's really never revisited after freshman year. Um, and a lot of people that I spoke to claim that they hadn't retained much from this due to the format of it, due to the fact that it's never been revisited. You know, so you got this information, but you're not really holding on to it. And um, I also heard that transfer students uh, who are exempt from taking their first year seminar and this freshman orientation, um, they've never had to take it. So that there's a gap there for the, um, for the learning of this. And, um, I, I can attest that as a, as a part-time faculty member here, as an adjunct, I've never taken any kind of sexual harassment training here at the college. Right, and I, I reached out to um, a couple of different sectors of um, faculty here to inquire about what kind of training they receive, um, and I did not actually get um, a response from those uh, members, but what I did learn is that, like Dr. Uh, Fry said, that adjuncts don't receive any sexual harassment training, but um, other schools, such as CCP, did respond to me. Um, and they said that their staff requires renewal of their sexual harassment training every third year to keep relevant. Um, and I, I know that, Kathy, you're a uh, professor at Heartland, right? Mm -hmm. um, can you speak about what kind of training you received, if any? Well, I just started Heartland this fall, and I haven't so far. Okay. So it doesn't mean that they, they don't have it in mm -hmm. their homes. But what you described, some, I, I think it's the fault of, of the legal system that you described. Because the cases say that the employer, if the employer has something in place, that the burden in many ways shifts more to the person who's complaining. So, you know, it's referred to as like file cabinet compliance. You know, yeah. this is a file cabinet somewhere that shows that. What do they call that? Yeah. That's what you call it in psychology. We call it CYA training, cover your ass training. Well, <laughs> once again, psychology is far more sure, descriptive. But you know, it's so yeah, I think I think you know, I've been through that training, I've given that training. Right. Um, you know, I don't think it's I, I I would love to see talk about psychological studies. I'd love to see studies to see if it has absolutely any impact on 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 what happens in the work environment. But that's not why it's done. It's done so that if there is a case, the company can go in and say, look, we do this training, we have this procedure, and then it's duly impressed, and, and uh, did, the, did you, victim, you know, did you follow this procedure that this company set up? So now we're putting a burden on someone who's been traumatized by sexual harassment to now jump through hoops and prove that they jumped through certain hoops. Right, and yeah. I think the, the statement I was making was that a slight criticism on the effectiveness, maybe, of, um, of this program that's in place, though, you're definitely right, it's there, so that they can fall back on it and say, oh, no, we told them about this, we know. Well, you know, I will say this, though, when I was at TED, the, the sexual harassment training was four hours long, it was a it was a course you had to go to, and there was role playing, and there was, mm -hmm. all, I tell you right now, it was one of the, it was, it was really, really useful. One of the things I learned in that thing is, Never have a student in your office with door closed. I never thought of that before. The idea of how that makes for a he said, she said much more difficult. And a dozen of these things, I was like, wow, really useful for me to understand. Um, and the other thing that's interesting is that I took the sexual harassment training with the coach of the football team at that point. And he was complaining about the fact that he was the only faculty member who also had to be responsible for the sexual harassment <coughs> of the students. That, you know, if, if someone in my into a psych class sexually harassed someone, no one's going to blame me. But if a football player harasses someone, the coach is going to be blamed for it. And how it was, it was how it, 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 in that regards, it was really important that he instilled that upon his students, not just the idea of you know making sure he didn't get in trouble, but the idea that he was responsible for his students as well. And as I said, it was a, it was a much different program. It was role playing. It was it was discussions. It was videos. It was like I said, I, I think that you can have a good training of sexual harassment. It just needs to be a little more interactive. Absolutely. 
And, um, you know, the, and a lot of those things that you're talking about are sort of what's missing for at least, at least for what our students are getting. Like I said, I do not know what our full-time faculty members get. It may be something along those lines, but I wasn't able to speak to any of them. But uh, as far as the students go, I think that we can say that there's like some lacking of, of that valuable thing rather than just this completion-based um, program that they have in, that they have, um, in place. Um, but I also looked into um, students and like their knowledge of actually how to report and the process for reporting um, claims of sexual harassment on campus. And a lot of them sort of kind of knew what was going on, so I wanted to pose the question, um, does anyone at this round table know or think that they know how to report an act of sexual harassment on Jefferson campus? Yes. Um, I've actually talked to a few students about this, and there's been various levels. Some people didn't know and didn't report. Other people actually tried to report going to a faculty member, and they were discouraged because it was seen as minor. It was essentially what you were saying. He said, she said behind uh, while they were in a room together, and it was an inappropriate comment. Um, she was eventually discouraged not to, and that faculty member didn't disclose it to Title IX. Um, and also, reporting through the process itself, I think we have a good program here, a good Title IX, um, but there's some issues with that, which I kind of want to go into later. But Sure. So I talked with the assistant uh, Title IX coordinator here, um, and she gave me some data uh, that there was 20 inquiries from August 2017 to February 2018. Six of them became formal investigations. That's on par when you compare it to formal investigations through Title IX at places like Stanford. It was basically a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, but in yeah, that, that's a, when you say on par, do you mean in terms of the ratio or the actual raw numbers? Uh, not the raw numbers, the okay, ratio. Okay. So comparing the student population Got and it. time frame. Um, it was basically 98% like similar. Um, but I've actually I've like looked into a formal investigation that occurred here. Um, and witnesses had to sign NDAs. And with our Title IX system, uh, the standard is TJU will not require a party to abide by a non-disclosure agreement in writing or otherwise that would prevent the redisclosure of information related to the outcome of the proceeding. That means they can talk about their experience or what they saw with other people, but they're, like the people I've tried to talk to about it feel like they can't discuss their role in the investigation, and that by extension, they can't discuss what they discussed in that investigation. So that kind of creates a culture of silence with uh, witnesses not being able to talk about what happens with other people and getting the word out. Um, and the Title IX coordinator can't disclose, or the policy is not to disclose what their decision was. So if somebody was given a disciplinary sanction, other people don't know that that sexual harassment or sexual abuse occurred. Um, and as a community, we can't really interface with that and react to it. Hey, didn't you say something about the fact that at Jefferson they're required to tell the campus that there's been like a physical assault or a robbery? Right? Yeah, so we get notifications. Um, Colin was actually here for this round table and I got a little, 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 little too far, um, which I often do. They, a little too far. <laughs> sorry, my life. They notify us every time there's a robbery on campus. They notify us that they have to shoot a deer, like a deer that got like hit by a car on campus. But um, I had spoken to a couple of professors who shall remain nameless who uh, confided to me that they had gone to the administration before to get the same rules of notification applied to sexual harassment, sexual abuse, like um, allegations and issues that arise on campus, and they were always told no, because they don't want to cause an outright, they, they don't want to panic, and they always threw that word allegation back at the professors, and like, well, it's an allegation, like, we can't do anything if it's an allegation, which is why in the petitions that we have on the table, we specifically put in the words allegation, because whether it's an allegation or not, Someone on this campus is still getting notified, and it tends to be the baseball players or like the soccer, like the sports teams, because either it happened at one of like the sports teams' houses. Like I know Carla, like a couple of her friends on the baseball <coughs> team, had, soccer team, had told her about it, like how their coach like gave them like a lecture about a case that happened that no one else seemed to know about unless you were on that team. And so like 
this like university tends to do closed hush hush meetings when it comes to these things. But like everyone gets to know who was robbed. Like everyone gets to know this. Like we all know like who was robbed on this campus. Like I like so like our whole thing is like we want to keep like the victims anonymous, but we deserve to know if an allegation of sexual assault or harassment happens on campus. Like we deserve to know what's going on on our campus. Do you mean do you expect to know the person's name who was no no God no no we just want to know like there was an allegation of sexual harassment sexual abuse on like Jefferson University on this date. Keep the victim's name private. Keep it all private. Like, that's all, like, that you, they don't even release the victim's name in, like, actual, like, in, like, sexual assault, like, sexual harassment cases, like, um, unless it's, like, really no real, like, I don't think they release Brock Turner's victim's name. Like, that they don't, like, because they're normally kept private, and we don't want to know their names. Like, I just want to know what's happening on our campus, because... And that's the, specifically, that's the Clary Act, which is different from Title IX, and they operate on the different yeah. standards. So that's why, because it's not an immediate danger, so and so, an accusation doesn't get reported the way robbery does. Um, I don't want to say that like it never gets thrown under the rug, because it probably definitely does. But I know at least um, from my experience last semester, I don't know if anyone else got this, but we did get a notification that there was some type of sexual harassment or sexual assault reported on campus. Um, from what I remember last semester, so I just want to. Yeah, it sounds yeah, familiar yeah, to me as well. Yeah, but just one time. So we got so we got one notification one time, but I'm friends with some of the players on the athletic teams who have been lectured about several incidents that happened within my four years here. And we've only been notified about one. It's, it sounds like to me from what you said, if it was a sexual assault, now you're in the Clary Act, so that would be reported. But sexual harassment is not criminal behavior, so that's probably the difference. Well, so the, the, they release a Clery Act report, but it's not like sent out to everyone to notify them. If you want the, if you want that information, you have to go searching for it. Okay, but it's not going to give you sexual harassment. It's not included mm -hmm. in the Clery Act, which is what you just said. Yeah. Do you think maybe that the athletes get that because that as athletes they are held well, not so hard to say, but at least that there's more. There's there's more things that are built into being a college athlete that that revolve around that. If I, I just I don't think that that's like like I don't think that that is fair though. Like I think we should like if you're gonna lecture one like lecture like everyone like we all like have like the ability to act in a way. So like I think that if they're gonna get and like the re and like the lectures that they tend to get or so I've heard from the baseball players is like come on guys like don't be doing things in public. Make sure like cover your back like. It's not like, guys, watch what you're doing. Behave. It's more like a don't get caught type of conversation. Well, I was just, I was just thinking because obviously I'm thinking if you play on a, on a college, I, I, I know from, is there anyone here who plays on, on, and how much do you have, do you have to do additional sexual harassment training? Yeah, we have yeah. to, it's like this new thing that just came out this year apparently, that we have to, it's like, um, it's like four chapters of information that you have to go through online. And it's like renewed every year, but why do only athletes have to take it? Why not? Exactly. Yeah. Let the entire yeah. campus take it. That's yeah. only fair. Okay, I'm sure the NCAA is the ones who require it, not, not, not the campus. So. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Just like one thing I wanted to say about it is like, like Megan's like right. Like a lot of the time, with like depending on the team, the baseball's a much larger team. There's a lot of people. It's hard to get like a formal like meeting to talk about certain things but I also think that one of it's with athletes it's different because there are cases like the Duke lacrosse team and things like that where like athletes are looked at and they are the ones who most of the time and like small colleges and big who have the parties and stuff like that so they're held more responsible so I think that like being on an athletic team you're not held to a higher standard but you're like focused on more because a lot of the time in past cases like been the athletes who have been the ones getting blamed for things or things are accused. So that's why I think we hear about it more than one. I don't think it's right, but I Yeah, that doesn't seem not. like because then that, that creates like a stigma around athletes being all like these like narcissistic. shady narcissistic sexual abusers. And like I know some great athletes that go here. Like they're such like nice people. So like I don't think it'd be fair. Like I don't think it's fair. Like I think that it should be like a university wide standard to educate people. Like I mean this is a university, let's educate people. Right. Uh, is there anything else you want to research that you've done? Um, not now, because I'm still talking to people. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I'm talking, like, researching specific events and trying to create an, a story about it. Excellent. Okay. Well, let's get to know what else we've talked about. Well, uh, here, do, 
with your forget your life as college students, everyone, but in your jobs, have you had training? What kind of jobs have you had? I'd be curious to know uh, how that all pans out and what you think should be done for, like, should we have everyone who goes into a job trained? What, what do you think? Well, um, I've personally never had any sexual harassment training. Every job that I've ever had that even looked that at all was just don't have any kind of romantic or sexual relationships with your coworkers. Flat out policy. Therefore, they, I guess they feel as though that's another one of the cover your ass kind of things. If that's in place, then therefore, oh, anything that happens in that, you're already breaking that umbrella rule. So therefore, why train? Isn't that you know? interesting? That like, so a romantic relationship and sexual harassment, like it's all lumped together. Yeah, I like. It's like how different yeah. can that possibly well, yeah. be? But we'll I would argue the same way. that one of the most accepted. Uh, Justifications that we had for people, justification for sexual harassment was the idea that the relations started off as a consensual relationship, and then once one of the, the people in the relationship broke it off, that's when the other person accused them of sexual harassment. Well, that's, I mean, the, I don't know if you looked at cases, but the Marital Bank case. Yes. Uh, oh, oh, yes. Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, here we go. Okay. okay. So, I mean, that, the Marital Bank case started off as, as, as a consensual relationship. Or, in, Consensual in that it wasn't rape, but but I think that she voluntarily went along with it. She did, but I think that that the what we're missing is the power dynamic, and, mm -hmm. and I think that that's something that many people don't understand. That if there's a disparity in power, you know, we're not talking about the same as you know going on Match.com being yeah. well, and like uh, yeah. which is way, way way after my era, by the way. I don't. Mm -hmm. Justice Rutgers actually made that distinction in his majority opinion. He said that the courts erroneously looked at the voluntariness of her, like the, the consent, the voluntariness of her actions, rather than the unwelcomeness of the initial like invitation to the thing. Because it was an unwelcome advance that she voluntarily went with it to preserve her job. And that's what should have been considered at the end of the day. Not the voluntariness of her actions, but the unwelcomeness of the situation. And Rehnquist isn't exactly a, you know, Yeah, he's, he's not really exactly a pioneer for women. So it was amazing that he was the one that came forth and said that because he's a, by no means a pioneer for women. Well, that's why you see, so, and that's why organizations of the military have anti-fragmentation policies because clearly that's a situation where power differential happens everywhere and then that causes so many issues. And again, it's that's, a good thing because the military has had no problems with sexual harassment, right? And, you know, it's, and it's, it's, and it's never the person, oh. it's never the, it's never the colonel that gets in trouble. It's, yeah, it's, it's the right. social sergeant, right. absolutely. You had to do that. I know we were doing the surveys, um, and I'm, my mom had those on that. I was talking her about it. They have like extensive training at her job. They have to do. Um, when you get hired, you have to do, there's a three-day course that you have to do. Three days, wow. And, like, you have to commit to it. And it's, like, 45 minutes away from where the actual job is. So you actually have to go to this every day at 8 o'clock, the three days at three, 8 o'clock in the morning. And it's, like, four hours long. And there's the role playing. Like, they have to do this when they first get hired. And they have to do it again um, in six months. And then the next following year in January or something like that. So they have extensive training. There's, like, this thick binder that they get of like resources who to go to at their job if something was to happen. They have like they don't have a no fraternizing policy, but like you do have to fill like like these forms if you do get into a relationship with somebody who works at the company just so they know and even when it ends like you have to say something just in case there is a, a complaint that it's not well we were in a secret relationship so she's lying type of thing. So that everyone's aware like who needs to be aware of something if something goes wrong. It's a big company? Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting. One of the things we were looking at as part of class was the idea of whether companies would start incorporating more social media issues in, social, in sexual harassment. With the idea that you could create a hostile work environment by never doing something at the workplace, by posting something on a Facebook page that in some way made other coworkers feel hostile, has become more and more common. But do you not believe how many court cases involve Facebook? We just said that thing we were looking at our, in front of psychology that. Half of the divorce cases last year had the words Facebook in them if you did a search through the wow. So more and more, and again, since more and more people have their have their social media tied to their workplace, more workplaces are feeling more comfortable saying, you know what, the, the things you're posting on social media have led to a hostile open environment for other employees, which mm -hmm. makes that a uh, very interesting idea that we can create a, a digital hostile open environment for, let's say, for, for even if you didn't do anything from the workplace per se. 
Obviously, it's a lot easier to do if you're using computer work to do it, though. I'll say that. But that's but, how it is in like schools too. But like, there's some policies where people like like bullying. If you do something online, even if it's not on physical campus, if it still transfers into like the school setting, then you can still get in trouble for it. So it's true. not surprising. So bouncing back to what you said about uh, posting on Facebook for uh, <clears throat> making it a, a hostile environment, I just been in the Marine Corps, and uh, recently, not too long ago, about three four months ago. The commandant of the Marine Corps came down on all the junior Marines because there was a Facebook page, an Instagram page, and a couple other social media sites where it was specifically aimed for just men in service. And there was the nude pictures and all the pictures of female service members posted on there for the men. And it was publicly disclosed. And somebody basically blew the whistle. And the commandant got wind of it and came down on all of them and basically set an example for the Marine Corps saying, This is not what's acceptable. It's creating a hostile work environment that is considered sexual harassment. And each individual that was part of that, that had added on to it or added the community on, were busted down in rank or kicked out of the Marine Corps or they got uh, confinement. And he basically set an example and standard for the Marine Corps with that. And as far as the sexual harassment training goes, annually we're required to take three different sessions of it. And it's basically a death by PowerPoint. But <laughs> <laughs> other than that, there's no. Uh, there's no follow-up in a sense. You don't have any kind of quizzes to take. There's no like, hey, like off the top of your head, what's what's like what's considered sexual harassment? Because in the military, especially, you're always you're always questioned on your job. Like, what are you doing? Hey, like, how do you do this? How do you do that? You all, you always got to be on the ball your feet. And there's no questions about, hey, like, would this be considered sexual harassment? Or like, what you're doing right now is that inappropriate or is it appropriate? Like, there's no questioning, and there's no basically there's no follow-up on it. And I feel like that relates across the board. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. How much time do we have left? Um, roughly five minutes. Five minutes. Yep. Anyone have any closing comments you'd like to make? Um, I would just like to say that we, like, before everyone leaves, um, we do have some petitions up here on the desk, and we also have a list over by the coffee that's um, a bunch of campus and community resources in regards to reporting and dealing with sexual harassment. So. I'd just like to invite everyone to um, sign if they feel obliged and take those, those resources with them. Can you tell people all of the two petitions about? So the two petitions on the table, one is um, to ha have Jefferson University notify us of allegations of sexual assault um, and sexual abuse the same way they would of a robbery. Keep the victim totally anonymous and everything, but just let us know what's happening on campus. And then the other petition is for Jefferson University to take control and be one of the first universities to change the dialogue around rape prevention tips and sexual harassment and abuse instead of doing prevention tips of don't wear this, don't do that, that promote a, a community, like that promote a society of fear and isolation amongst women and men and victim blame. Uh, we are asking that they instead are proactive and teach like affirmative consent and how not to rape and how like, like what to do. And instead we're gonna educate the public on like how not to like assault people and like affirmative consent rather than victim blame by like watch what you wear, watch what you say, watch what you drink. Did anything surprise you in, in the work that you did for this? Any surprises? Anything that struck you? I was just surprised that like the conversations around the, the survey was in some of the things that people thought was acceptable to be done to them, that they didn't know that something could sexual harassment like they were like oh that's that's not sexual harassment like especially like with the whole victim blaming thing like I had conversations with a few women who felt like some of the inappropriate touching or just coming on to them was appropriate because they were something or they may have flirted with them on previous occasions or they felt like they asked for they put themselves in a position for it to be done to them like the the lack of knowledge about it in general is like very surprising and every time like, I talk about this, it always reminds me of that video that um, like Britain released, which is on how to serve someone a cup of tea, and they relate tea to like consent. So if like, you came over and you had tea one time before, that doesn't mean you're going to want tea every time you come over. And I shouldn't force you to drink tea. If you say that you want tea and I boil the water and I put it in the cup and I bring it back and you no longer want tea, I can't force you to drink the tea. If you wanted tea but then you fell asleep, I shouldn't still pour the tea down your throat while you're sleeping. <laughs> so that's like, that's how we should be like, and like it seems so obvious and funny when we're talking about the tea, 
But then all of a sudden you put it like a sexual situation like, well, I don't know, man. Like, I had, we, we banged before. Like, or, how was I supposed to know she didn't want to do it anymore? Like, consent. I just don't like that you disparaged tea as a tea. <laughs> <laughs> I love tea. I'm all about the tea. But it was just such a great video. And it was just, Excellent. and it's like so obvious as you're watching. You're like, duh. Like, just because like you gave someone tea before doesn't mean they want tea again. Like, they could be in the middle of drinking the tea and then decide, I don't want this tea anymore. Don't force them to finish the tea. <laughs> I'd like to offer a thank you to my students. Uh, like I said, this has been a, I tell you right now, this is my second semester teaching forensic psychology. And I have learned so much from the students this semester. We actually, the students this semester earlier, they did a presentation at CCP on what is forensic psychology for law and society. That actually Wonderful. came over and was in the So it's been a very experiential learning semester. Well, that's students the students to my Come, to come over to Harpen. We'll do a little Harpen. Is that okay? Um, anyone have any last minute comments? Great job. Excellent. Thank you very much. I want to thank the uh, Arlen Specter House, and I want to thank Evan Lane, who had to leave for his, for his, uh, his, his, what was the award? He's being honored. He's being honored. His first honor. What a great guy. For a great guy. I'd like to thank you all for coming. Uh, have a good afternoon. Thank you.